My name is Billy Mangala, and you're listening to the Emerald Podcast Network. Hello, you're listening to the Emerald Podcast Network. I'm Frankie Lewis, a writer for the Arts and Culture Desk with The Daily Emerald. This is another episode of Season 2 of Spotlight on Science. In this series, members of the University of Oregon science community sit down and talk about their research and current events in their field in a language that we can all understand. Today, our guest is Professor David McCormick, director of the Institute of Neuroscience. We discuss his research of optimizing brain performance, his decision to leave Yale for Oregon, his connection to the new Knight campus, and much more. Let's get to it. Well, thanks so much again for doing this. I really appreciate it. Glad to be here. Yeah, lots to talk about. Um, First off, your research. I saw from your website, you're really interested in kind of decision making in the brain and and kind of how we interpret and analyze signals that are that we um, experience in our surroundings. Um, how did you first get interested in that? Well, actually, um, let's back up just a second. I'm, I'm yeah. interested in decision-making. I'm also interested in um, what I call optimal state, you know, okay. the, the state of awareness where you're in the zone, everything's yeah. clicking, things yeah. are going well, whether it be in the classroom or sports or music or performance mm. or or whatever, um, you know, what is that state of the brain where things are going well? Yeah. And uh, we're, we're working on that. But part of that is then obviously making decisions and working forward. So <clears throat> it's a long, long story exactly how I got there. I'll try to make it uh, brief to give you an overview. I got interested in the brain uh, and uh, how it mediates the mind because through my childhood, my mother had epilepsy. She had an accident. Mm. When she was a teenager, her horse kicked her in the jaw, broke her jaw, and damaged a little bit of her brain. And uh, she had seizures. She had the type Mm -hmm. of seizures where um, she would stop and just kind of stare and mumble, Mm -hmm. and she'd be confused. Mm -hmm. Um, It wasn't the type where the person falls down and and shakes and so on. Less visible. Yeah. Yeah, it was more like a lot of confusion, and her personality would change. Uh, Mm. She wasn't really herself. She wasn't able to interact and so on. And as a child, I saw this on a regular basis, and, you know, my father was an electrical engineer. Yeah. And I asked him, well, gee, Dad, what's going on with Mom, you know? And he said, well, you know, she has this, she had this accident, and it, damaged part of her brain mm-hmm. and uh, she has seizures and yeah. so what you're seeing is that parts of her brain are not working properly yeah you know and so I thought wow that's amazing I mean uh, you know we as a as as individuals are dependent upon the operation of this thing you yeah. know an organ yeah exactly you know in your body yeah. and if it's not working properly we don't yeah. work properly. And if it works properly, we work properly. So yeah. here's this amazing thing. Well, the brain gives rise to us, Yeah, you know? And makes it makes us who we are. Yeah. makes us who we are. And, uh, and at the time, this was maybe 60s, okay. early 70s. A lot of science fiction movies were out that talked about, you know, brains in a vat. Sure. You know, brain, oh, yeah. A brain in a... There's a famous oh. one called Donovan's Brain in which uh, Nancy Reagan was the star, actually. <laughs> and they kept a, a guy's brain alive in a fish tank. Oh, my goodness. And, 
he, you know, obviously did evil yeah. things then and controlled people right. and so well, on I was from say the fish tank. Young Frankenstein too. I remember that one. That, that was, was later on. Yeah, later yeah. on. But, still, but still similar, yeah. similar. Abby Normal. Yeah, was the, <laughs> was the brain. That's but classic. It was just very interesting. The idea that the brain is a neural circuit is is just like a television or a radio, except more complicated, and yet could give rise to thought yeah. and feelings. You know. And so that fascinated me, and that's how I got into into neuroscience. And if, judging from your research, is this kind of you've said you're interested in this optimal state? Is this mm-hmm. optimal state? Do you see it's kind of consistent between individuals, or is it really unique across different people? Well, you know, <clears throat> that's an interesting question. So I'll I'll give a little story, and then we'll go into that. Sure. So I got interested in. Um, state variations and the biggest state variation we experience is sleep and waking, you mm. know, and sleep is a, another example of, of, uh, how our consciousness is altered by the state of our brain. Mm-hmm. You know, here it's not, um, a, a brain damage or something. It's normal. Yeah. You go to sleep and all of a sudden you're having vivid dreams yeah. where you can fly or, you forgot about the final exam yeah. <laughs> or you show up at school and you realize you're not wearing pants or something yeah. <laughs> like that. You know, these are kind of common dreams and these bizarre things happen in our world that, you know, sometimes that they're very vivid, seem very real. Hmm. That means our brain can generate our reality even offline, like yeah. during sleep. So I get interested in sleep and how it was generated. We did a lot of research on the neural uh, mechanisms of sleep, yeah, and so on, and we were very successful in generate in figuring out the circuits of how that activity is generated. That kind of random but organized activity you experience during sleep, yeah. Uh, but then you know, I was thinking, well, during waking, we also have state variations, and I mentioned already, you know, being in the zone, for example, yeah. or being paying attention, and yeah. so on. And so we got interested in these waking state variations and I also started doing meditation because meditation is a method to train your brain to be in a certain state that's conducive to uh, relaxation or uh, insight into Mm -hmm. how things are and so on well then I started paying attention to state variations during waking and there's lots of them yeah you know we don't have very good words for them like attention, inattention. There's all kinds of gradation of attention, yeah. you know. And it's probably and just not off and on too. It's it, kind of a, it's a gradient, exactly. right? So if you imagine a, a biathlon, they they're skiing and then they come to the target and they have to sit and shoot and hit the yes. hit the bullseye, right? So much harder than it looks. Exactly. Yeah. And so they're doing body regulation, like their breathing and their heartbeat, and you know because the gun is going to move with mm-hmm. with those things. But they also do have to do brain state regulation. Huh. You know, they have to be very attentive and pull the trigger at just the right moment. Right. Or an archer, yeah. same deal. You know, you have to release the the arrow at just the right moment, and you have to do it. Or a ballet dancer or a concert pianist, they have to be able to do a precise movement over and over and over again, and that doesn't require just the neural pathways be precise but also requires that the brain state be exactly the same every mm, time. Yeah. So I, I think that people that are excellent performers or excellent in athletes or, you know, it could be in scholastics too, 
they're excellent in maintaining their brain state mm. at the right level yeah. for doing that task. Maintaining that optimal state for a longer period of time. Exactly. And, uh, y- you know, I not only was trying to work with that in my own head with meditation, yeah. you know, how can I train my mind to be more focused and more in that optimal state, which is a trainable, learnable thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also what's going on in the brain when that happens? You know, what yeah. neural pathways are doing that? Yeah. And fascinating enough, the same neural pathways that control your body are controlling your brain. So like the athlete, like I said, trying to control their breathing and their heart rate and so on to mm-hmm. be in the right sequence to, sure. to uh, hit the target. Those pathways, norepinephrine, acetylcholine, they also control your brain state, hmm. you know, and they're controlling your attention and, and whether you're in that zone or not. So when you're training your body to be in the right state, you're training your mind to be in the right state. So they're sort also. of linked, yeah. They're linked together. Which makes sense. I think you'd want it to be that way. If they, You don't want your body to be at one speed and your mind to be at a different speed. Exactly. Yeah. You know, people... We're, we're kind of, many of us kind of disembodied heads. We don't think about our bodies much. We're yeah. just kind of in our head, you know, <laughs> and it gets worse with electronics. You're always on your phone, you're oh, always yeah. in your head and, you, and you're walking around not even thinking about where you're going. Um, so, you know, but we are, we, we're, 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 he- we're brains inside heads on top of bodies all connected together, you know. Yeah. You know how it is if you feel sick. How much it affects your mind oh, state. Oh yeah, totally. You know? You're completely if, thrown off. You're yeah. completely thrown off, and so you are connected together. And you know that's that's another type of meditation training, by the way, is getting your mind and body connected together better. Yeah. So let's stay with that meditation because I I've, I've heard that you you even traveled to Tibet to kind of dabble in some some of their meditation techniques too. When did you start traveling to Tibet, and and what prompted that first trip? Really? Yeah. Um, actually, I go to Tibetan monasteries. They're okay. they're they're Tibetan monasteries in exile, and uh, when the Dalai Lama escaped from uh, Tibet when China was taking over, they established a large uh, Tibetan community in India. Hmm. So it's actually in India. Okay, and yeah. uh, they replicated a lot of their monasteries in India. Uh, so these are famous Tibetan monasteries in Tibet, and now they have copies of them. In India, became oh, like okay. University of Oregon in Mexico, right? You know, okay. because the government clamped down on University of Oregon. Okay, and said, yeah. Okay, you guys, you know, we're we're taking you down. You yeah. Know? So you guys said, well, let's go make University of Oregon in Mexico, <laughs> and so uh, that's how it is. So I got involved in that because the Dalai Lama and uh, Emory University made a collaborative agreement. They said, you know, science is trying to figure out. The mind, you guys are trying to figure out the mind. Mm-hmm. We do it through experiments. You do it through introspection mm-hmm. and study. Yeah. Why don't we get together and talk? And they did. And then the Dalai Lama said, well, would some of your teachers like to come to our monastic universities? The, the monasteries are also their universities. Right, right. And the, the monks go well, there for about- It's a place of learning for them. It's a place yeah. of learning. Yeah. They go for about 20 years. Uh, they're there. Imagine being in college for twenty years. Yeah. And well, some of them start when they're four years old. Some of them start when they're older. And uh, they said, "Let's get together and and get, bring some science over to our our tradition." Hmm. Um, so they started looking for scientists to do that. Well, uh, I'm a neuroscientist. Yeah. I like meditation. <laughs> I'm interested in Buddhism. So 
I said, hey, sure enough, I'll, I'll do that. I, I, I would love to uh, participate. Sure. So that was about five years ago. And, and what's that experience like? I mean, are they, do they, do they understand the concepts well? Are they a little bit, is it a little bit foreign to them? Are they, um, are they a little, are they quick to learn or are they like a little more hesitant to accept oh, some it's, of the stuff? It's a wonderful experience. Um, first of all, this is the first change in our curriculum since the year 1300 or so. <laughs> so imagine going back to, you know, 1300 kind of curriculum. Um, it, it, they haven't, they don't have a lot of the background knowledge yeah. that they don't have that eye clickers have. back then. Yeah. Yeah. No. <laughs> yeah. The, the one thing they do have now, which is surprising the first time you see it, is they have iPhones. Oh. They're, they're allowed now to have uh, really? the monks are allowed to have phones. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, that's because most of them come from Nepal or Tibet, and huh. their families are back there, and that's the only way they can be in touch with them. Oh, interesting. Yeah, okay. so they're all running around in their in their yeah. robes, and they're very monk like, and right. then all of a sudden they'll pull out <laughs> a phone, <laughs> which is kind of like whoa. But um, so they they have a very different tradition. They don't have a scientific tradition, so science to them is is a brand new thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's why we're, we're there. We're to, there just to tell them about the scientific method. And it's a cultural exchange. So we're mm-hmm. to learn from them, um, you know, the, the kind of Buddhist perspective or the Tibetan pr- perspective on life. Now, I'll, I'll tell you about both of those real quick. The scientific perspective is, you know, observe, make a hypothesis, do an experiment, sure. to test hypothesis, see, see if it's... Yeah. You can get data in supporting it or falsify it and then repeat. Yeah. You know, observe the loop. hypothesis yeah. loop and re- refine your understanding. Yeah. Their you know, perspective is to uh, debate. They do a lot of debate. Every mm-hmm. day they're doing debate. They have a very special way of debating. It's very physical. It's, it's like watching a soccer game almost. Mm-hmm. Um, they do a lot of study. They do a lot of memorization. And they do a lot of introspection. So they sit and listen to their, their minds and introspect what's mm. going on. And uh, they do a lot of community type stuff. They're, they're, it's very community oriented type things. And, they're, and their main uh, emphasis as far as community is generosity and compassion. Mm. Okay, They believe that to be in touch with life, you have to be engaged in life and you have to be engaged in life in a wholesome way. To understand life, you have to be engaged with it. You have to be engaged in a wholesome way. So they, they spend a lot of time uh, kind of working on their minds and their spirit so that they're generous, giving, loving, kind, and so on. And so when you go there, you're, there's about 15,000 monks. Mm-hmm. You're immersed immediately in a, a feeling of peace. Hmm. And it's not just because it's a monastery, that the people are just very in touch with each other, you know? Mm-hmm. They're very kind, very jovial, very, mm-hmm. very... Uh, Easy going, very yeah. easy going people. No angst built up between no, anyone. No, I didn't see any angst at all, mm. you know, when I was there, even though Tibet, their country is yeah. in, in significant trouble yeah. uh, as, a, as an independent nation. So <clears throat> they, um, that's, that's a really interesting thing. And then they're very we as opposed to me, mm. you know. That's what we learned from them is that it's all about us. You want to you be happy? Make your life about us mm. as opposed to about yourself. You know what I mean? When it's all about you, you feel like you have to protect yourself from every little thing. When it's all about mm. we and everybody else is all about we, then everybody's looking out for each other and mm. it feels much more relaxing. Interesting. You know what I mean? yeah. So then, so that's the, 
that's what we learned from them. That's one thing we learned, plus all the other Buddhist perspectives on that. Uh, what we try to teach them is the scientific method and, and neuroscience. They don't think that the brain is the seat of the mind, and they don't think that the brain is where you feel things. Mm. You know, a lot of them feel believe that you feel with your heart or with your gut, and you know, they know that the brain has something to do with vision or hearing, but they don't have any idea what's in the brain, mm -hmm. you know. So we have to start by, you know, demonstrating to them that the brain is important. Yeah. How would you demonstrate that? Well, there's a really cool experiment you can do, we do, with them is uh, you record a muscle activity from my hand, for example. We have a little device you can buy called uh, from a little company called Backyard Brains literally sells this for like a hundred bucks record the muscle activity from my hand and then that through an Arduino activates a stimulator that I put on the monk's hand okay huh. or on a nerve yeah. that controls his hand and I move my hand and his hand moves Ooh. just like I can control his hand by moving wow. my hand you know he can't control it anymore I'm in control right That's crazy. it's very freaky and they are like, they believe their mind controls their hand. I'm like, nope. So that would be. Your mind is in touch with your brain, and your brain through nerves controls your mm -hmm. hand, the muscles in your hand. And so this is a demonstration that I can take control by short circuiting that, by yeah. stimulating the nerves directly. Yeah. You know? And so, as try as they may, they can't resist yeah. the, the movement that That's I make their hand. That's absolutely shocking for them. Yeah. Yeah. yeah pun intended, I Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. It is uh, quite. Uh, they laugh so hard. They're amazing students because uh, they're very jovial, very interactive, mm. uh, very, you know, responsive. I ask. It's all in Tibetan, by the way. I have to speak to a translator. Oh, really? Yeah. And then the translator puts it in Tibetan, and then they all respond immediately. Yeah. If I have fifty students in the room, I'll often have fifty answers shouted at me. When I ask a question, I wish you, know? you had that in lecture, huh? Yeah, yeah, it's so much fun. <laughs> I, I've taught in uh, China, I've taught in France, I've taught in Germany and the U.S. and and, and the Tibetan monks are the best students. Mm. I tell you, they're just so much fun. You know? well, I guess they learn for a living, so that's probably they probably would be the best. Students, I think this but... is kind of like recess for them. It's like a break yeah. because when I've seen them with their own teachers, they're very quiet. <laughs> and very respectful. But with us Americans, you know, they feel like they can they cut can loose. Cut loose a little bit. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, that's awesome. Um, it's really admirable that you're doing that too. I'm sure it's beneficial for you. So Yeah, it is. Uh, I learned a, a lot from them um, about a, um, a healthy way of living. Yeah. yeah. Um, now, transitioning a bit here, um, I know you're involved in some degree with a new night campus. Yeah. Um, so I was curious, kind of, what's your official role in that, and um, what's maybe something that really excites you about the new campus? Well, my official role is I'm the director of the Institute of Neuroscience here at the University of Oregon. Um, I just came on last year. Yeah, sure. And um, from Yale, correct? Right. Yeah, I yeah. was at Yale for 30 years. I was the kind of co-director of the neuroscience program there. And um, how will we interface with the Knight campus? I'm also on the advisory board for for. Or, or the night campus. Right, right. So exactly what's going to happen in night campus is still, you know, being debated and, and uh, going to be de determined. It's for applied science. So, and they have a new director, Bob Goldberg, yeah. who's uh, coming from Georgia Tech. He's very capable. And uh, when I spoke to him 
in meetings, he indicated that he would like to have a campus that's basically a center for centers. So meaning that uh, the Knight Campus would give be a parts, you know, that could be put together okay. to components, achieve yeah. components that could be put together in, in flexible ways to okay. achieve a task. And the task uh-huh. is to take some good ideas and, and to edge them towards applied. Right. Right. So he's a biomedical engineer. Yeah. So, and he works in skeletal muscle interactions and regrowth yeah. and injury and so on. Uh, so he's done a lot of that. And yeah, how do we it, reapply? How do yeah. we get organs to re- regenerate and, and so on? Sure. Yeah, he gave a great lecture, I think, uh, a month ago about uh, when he visited here for a while. That was, Correct. That was fun to attend. Right. But. So I think that, uh, you know, it remains to be determined how neuroscience is going to be involved with that. I'm sure it's going to be, you know, involved. Uh, there are many different ways to think about biomedical engineering and neuroscience. So... For example, brain-machine interface, people that, you know, lose a limb or or paraplegic or something or lose a a sense organ, hearing. Cochlear implants is is a brain-machine interface. A cochlear implant is a a, a machine that takes sound and turns it into nerve impulses and stimulates the cochlear nerve in your Mm -hmm. ear. And then people can hear again, you know, or maybe hear for the first time. Uh, So that, that type of thing is a possibility. There are also new mm, biomedical methods to generate, for example, brain organoids. You could take human cells and through some manipulations get them to grow a human little human brain in a dish. Oh, wow. And you can study that brain organoid huh. um, and test you know, drugs or whatever on it that you are huh. trying to test. And well, look, does it, what does it look like? Does it look? I mean, it looks it, like a ball of cells. Doesn't look like a real. Okay, brain. I was saying it's like a yeah. small miniature brain. <laughs> like, <laughs> no, it doesn't look quite funny. Like that. Yeah, it would be pretty funny. Yeah. Um, well, I also want to touch on your move from Yale to Oregon because you mentioned that you've been you know, at Yale for thirty years. Um, you've done a bunch of research through them. Um, what ultimately attracted you to UO and then kind of to the state of Oregon in general? I guess. Well, uh, it's both professional and personal. Mm-hmm. Um, my wife's family moved to Portland about 20 years ago, and we started oh. visiting Oregon. Okay. And I'm like, I was just blown away. I mean, Oregon is just it's like a pristine part of the country mm-hmm. where you could go out on the beach, and you're, you're the only one on the beach. You know, there's <laughs> yeah, exactly. just no footprints in the sand, yeah. or you can go into the into the woods and, and be alone, and there's just beautiful mm-hmm. trees and, and uh, plants and so on. And I was quite struck by the lifestyle in Oregon and remember I was talking about the monks and how it's about we not me and uh, it's how it's all about yeah. work-life balance and I thought you know Oregon is one of those places where you can achieve that you can mm-hmm. have a work-life balance you can mm-hmm. have a, a life that's kind um, of community oriented uh, it's more about the quality of life as opposed to the the number of dollars you have in your bank account yeah, sure, or something yeah. like that and so I was very interested in uh, in um in moving to Oregon uh, as a, a, an eventuality in my life. And then University of Oregon actually has a really uh, top-rated uh, top or first-class neuroscience community yeah. here. Yeah, true. And it's it actually, just by luck, is, is specializes in my area, oh. which is neural circuits. Yeah. And so it just makes perfect sense, both professionally and personally, for me to be at the University of Oregon. Yeah, perfect storm just kind of came together. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And so 
I was, you know, looking around for a place to go last year, and one of the people at University of Oregon in uh, in the in the Institute of Neuroscience approached me and said, "Well, you know, check us out. Would you yeah. be interested?" And I said, "Yeah, sure." You know, you caused a small controversy though, moving from Yale to Oregon because you you took away your beloved dog Sasha. That's, that's looked correct. This up. <laughs> how how is Sasha doing? Is she uh, uh, getting to the, um, acclimatizing to the Oregon lifestyle? Yeah, uh, <laughs> yes, she is. Uh, I think I need to bring her on campus more. So at yeah. Yale, we lived on campus. My wife and I and our dog lived. With the students oh. in the dorm. Oh, I read the article. It was it was a big deal when you got. When yeah. You uh, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I used to walk across campus a couple of times a day with the dog, and somehow the dog got more and more and more famous, <laughs> to the point when that after thirty years, I'd been there for thirty years. The dog had been there three years, and I, when I, when I announced that I was leaving, they they wrote a front page article about the dog leaving. <laughs> um, I, I I think that she's just famous because she's white and fluffy and cute, and uh, so she's a Samoyed. And um, she tolerates people picking her up and holding her. So oh. um, I would walk across campus, and people would say, can I pick up Sasha? And I'd say, sure. And then people would post pictures of themselves of on, on Facebook. So after three years, I think she had... 3,500 Facebook friends or something like that. There's only about 4,000 Just to clarify, that's the dog's Facebook page. Yeah, yeah. I have like 50 <laughs> friends, you know. <laughs> and those are just, you know, people I bribe to friend me. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, she she had 3,500. And she would regularly get 1,000 likes or even 2,000 likes on something. And um, there was a kind of a phenomenon. It got to the, it got a little – it was great in the sense that I got to meet a lot of wonderful people. You yeah. Know, because – I would walk across campus. It'd take me an hour to go a mile because everybody come. Can I pet Sasha? Can I pet Sasha? And, and uh, yeah, yeah. And I'd meet people, and, uh, and that was another lesson in life. I learned that you know there's so much goodwill in, in just about every in everybody actually, and uh, you just need a trigger to bring it out. Yeah, you know? and a fluffy dog is a good way is to one connect with students too. Yeah, yeah. Well, it just wasn't just students because it's centered in town, so. It was people from all walks of mm, life, okay. townspeople as well as students, mm. and and uh, that you know was just a was just this dog, you know, all dogs actually yeah. kind of it's an icebreaker and yeah, it makes sure. made for that connection. Sure. So what happened was, real quick, yeah. uh, when I announced I was coming here, and they wrote that newspaper article about Sasha coming to University of Oregon, somebody at University of Oregon saw this, and they made a they gave her an ID, they gave her title director of fluffiness uh. <laughs> and they gave her uoid and they posted it on the website you no. can still find it oh I think. my goodness and somebody at yale f- saw this you know this I, I didn't know about any of this I, <laughs> uh somebody at yale saw this and they posted this id on the uh, yale facebook page which has you know fifteen thousand student oh, members yeah. or something and they posted it and they put a little title it said that feeling you get when you see your ex with somebody new. <laughs> <laughs> and it got about 2,000 angry, angry and, reacts. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that was really entertaining. Oh, my goodness. The first time I met President Schill, he goes, so how's Sasha? Yeah. <laughs> it was the first thing he said. <laughs> yeah, I, I do. I do stuff too. You know, I'm a. I'm pretty big time. To, no, no one cares. Just the dog. Like this. The <laughs> <laughs> Just the dog. Uh, um, well, wrapping up here, um, I think we're getting a little thin on time, but um, just some more general questions. 
what's maybe the luckiest or unexpected discovery that you've had in your scientific career? Because you have uh, quite the accolades. I've, I've seen your CV, so I know you've got some stuff on there. But um, what's maybe the luckiest discovery you've ever had? Well, uh, you know, science is very serendipitous. I would say there are many, many lucky things that have happened. Yeah. In fact, you know, achievement is just being the right person, the right place at the right time. Yeah. And you don't, you can maybe have some control a little bit over being the right person. And yeah. still, that's a little control. You don't have any control over being the right place at the right time. So it's a lot of luck, mm-hmm. if you want to call it that. Yeah. Uh, so when I was a graduate student, this was a very important, formative thing for my career. Uh, the hot topic at the time was Pavlov's dogs. So Pavlov mm-hmm. noticed a uh, hundred years ago that you know a dog, if he heard a bell that meant lunchtime, the dog would salivate to the bell. And so he had learned that the bell, and this was thought to be kind of a very simple form of learning that um, may be a model for all types of learning. You know, it's called classical mm-hmm. conditioning or Pavlovian conditioning. Sure. Yeah. Um, and I was working in a lab that was working on that topic when I was young, and I just happened to find the brain region that mediates that, the cerebellum. Mm. And it was just by keeping your eyes open and making, you know, accidental discoveries, basically. I've, I found That's that what it takes sometimes. You just, exactly. I mean, sometimes working, you have to work hard enough to just get to the point where you get that, you know, kind of that happy break. Sort yeah. Of. I, I I was lesioning parts of the brain, and I accidentally lesioned part of the cerebellum, and the animal forgot the response. And huh. uh, so I said, well, what did I lesion? And I looked, and I said, oh, it's the cerebellum. And then so I did it again, and it, same thing. And that was the discovery. It launched my career, basically, wow. because that uh, was a, a big deal back then. Yeah. Yeah. So it's well, still a big deal that. now. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. It's interesting. <laughs> Yeah, and it turns out that Pavlov is my great 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 grandfather scientifically. I didn't know that. No I way. I looked it up. Yeah, wow. his his student was my, and then next student, next student, next student, next student, then me. You know, so oh, it was a direct wow. line from from Pavlov uh, in Moscow and to huh. to me, and, um, and I was in uh, Stanford tradition, University yeah. at the time. So yeah. it was meant to be. Yeah. It was meant to, it be. Was meant to it, be. Maybe I'm his reincarnation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Or maybe the dog. Maybe, maybe Saja's a dog's reincarnation. <laughs> <laughs> One of his dogs. It's you know, it's like you know. Yeah. Well I think that's a good place to wrap up. I thank you so much for, thank for you. coming on today. This is this has been this has been a pleasure. So Well, great. It was it was very nice to be here and oh, thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you so much. That was our fifth episode of season two of Spotlight on Science. Big thanks to Professor McCormick for being our guest today. I'm Frankie Lewis. If you'd like to recommend a member of the UO Science community for us to interview, please leave us a comment on SoundCloud or at thedailyemerald.com. The music in this episode is Zombie Disco by Six Umbrellas, which we found on freemusicarchive.org. To hear more from the Emerald Podcast Network, why wouldn't you? You can subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud and listen to these episodes right on the Emerald homepage at dailyemerald.com. Thanks for listening.